This is Joel Johnson, Senior Minister at Parkview Christian Church. I want to thank you for listening to our sermons online. If you have any questions, feel free to contact me by email at joeljohnson at parkviewfinley.org. So identity, uh, it's a word that we see if you're in any form of social media, if you are watching any form of news, you hear this word quite commonly now, identity. All right. People are, are chasing their identity. They're trying to find out where they belong, who they belong to, or who they belong with. And it's kind of this hot button issue right now. Again, you hear this word, but it's not really like, this isn't a recent development that people are talking about identity. Um, I'll be honest, yeah, it, to be fair, it's, it's more prevalent now, but it's always been kind of this big issue that, that people have to wrestle through. Now, here's your spoiler alert. For any time that I'm up on this stage, I'm going to make movie references. I like movies, and so I was, I was trying to figure out, like, which, which movie reference should I make for my introduction? And it's not that, like, it was hard to find one because there are so few, but really because there are just there's so many. I had a conversation with Jonah just talking entirely about, like, how almost every Disney movie somehow deals with identity. Originally, in the first draft of this introduction, I went through, like, the movie Tarzan and just talked about it and made jokes about Phil Collins' excellent work writing that music. But I decided to leave it out. But it's because this idea of identity being a topic or a trope in movies, it's older than that. I mean, one of the biggest, most popular movies from the 80s was The Breakfast Club, and the, the whole point of that movie is five students with different identities that should clash are forced together, and they learn, hey, we're, we're not so different. And it's this great movie, and it's this great celebration at the end. But it goes, uh, it goes older than that. Um, in light of recent news, I thought it was okay to, to mention, like, Greece is talking about identity, because you have Danny Zuko out there on the beach being super nice, and then he has to go back and be who he was at school, be Mr. Cool Guy, and when that conflicts because Sandra D comes along, and she's now there at school with him, and she knows him one way and sees him this other way, they have this conflicting identity, and they have to figure out how to work through it. But it's, it's older than the, even that. Identity causes us to divide, and, um, or it's something that we do is we divide ourselves by our identity. An old piece of media, not even, it wasn't a movie originally, but Romeo and Juliet is two factions of identities. I'm a Montague, you're a Capulet, we have to stay against each other, but they don't want to. And so there's this idea of identity being so important to us, this question of who am I and what implications that has for us. But it's older than that. It's, it's ancient. So this morning we are going to be journeying through Judges uh, 6 through 9. We're going to be looking at the story of Gideon, specifically how Gideon struggles through his identity and the implications that it has. Now, in order to do this, we have to have a brief moment of historical context. Uh, Judges takes place in a time after the conquest of the Promised Land. So Moses brought the people out of Egypt, okay, and then they wander for 40 years, and then Moses dies, and they enter into the Promised Land under the rule of Joshua. And Joshua leads them all as they, like, fight a bunch of wars and win their land that God had promised them. Um, well, then Joshua dies, and the people are left to themselves, and they enter into this cycle, this cycle of, of turning to idolatry, 
So they're basically like, ah, we're going to worship the, the, the gods of the people around us. And God's like, fine. You don't want to worship me, then we'll see what these other gods will do for you. But you're not going to like it. So then what happens is other people from other nations, usually the nations of the, the gods and idols that they were worshiping, would come in and they would oppress Israel. And Israel would realize, oh man, this was, this was, this was a bad choice. I should, we, should, we should not have done this. And what they will do is then they'll apologize to God. They'll say, oh man, please, please deliver us. We're sorry. And God will eventually send a judge to deliver them. They'll have a time of peace. And then they will eventually turn back to idolatry and start this all over again. Now, where we find Gideon in Judges chapter 6, it's a time when the people are being oppressed by the Midianites. And, and sort of like the grasshoppers in a bug's life who come and eat and leave, that's kind of what Midian does. They come during the harvest time, during the crops, and they just ravage the crops, feeding themselves, feeding their, their camels, and then they would leave. And Israel would have to survive on what they could grow during winter. Um, so this has been going on for seven years. And a lot of the people have moved out of the plains lands and into the mountains to hide from the oppression of the Midianites. Which brings us to where we specifically find Gideon in our story. Judges uh, 6, verse 11 and 12. Then the angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak tree that was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizarite. And his son Gideon was beating out the wheat in the winepress in order to save it from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. Okay, so what's happening is when you harvested wheat, you'd grab all the wheat, you'd, you know, you'd cut it off, and you'd put it down on the ground, and you would take this kind of rake-looking thing, and you would just smash the ever-loving tar out of it. You would just, just hit it over and over. And then you'd scoop under it, and you'd throw it up into the air, um, and the reason why you do that is when, while you were hitting it, you would separate the, the grain, the good part, from like the covering that would be on the, the wheat. And you'd also separate it from the stalks. And so when you throw it up, the grain, which is heavier than the, than the covering, the chaff, um, would float away in the wind, while the grain, which is heavier, would fall down to the ground. And um, so that's what he's doing. But it says here that he's doing this in a wine press. And it says specifically he's doing it in the wine press not to get caught. Now, how this would work is the wine press would be like you've seen, like probably, I imagine, videos of people like in Italy stomping on the grapes and walking around in the judge. Maybe you haven't. It's kind of gross. Um, bare feet <laughs> going on wine. But uh, that's what they would do. I don't know if that's the process. But they would crush the grapes, and all the juice would flow out of this big barrel. And it would flow into a lower... Um, kind of ditch that would capture all that stuff, capture all the juice. Gideon is down inside this ditch doing this. So he's below ground level, and he's doing this so that he doesn't get caught. So it's not just a person standing up, up top doing this, but rather he has a little cover while he does it. So he's down below, he's throwing it up so that the wind can still do its job, but that's what's going on here. He is hiding. It says, again, specifically that he's doing this so that he would not be caught by the Midianites. 
Gideon is doing this in a manner so that he doesn't get caught. And we would look at that task, and because we have the, the gift of hindsight, we get to look back in the story, and we get to look how God works through him. We, we kind of maybe are a bit harsh, but we say things like, man, that's cowardly that he's hiding. Why, why is he doing this? I can't believe that he wouldn't just do this out in the open and challenge the Midianites. But again, we have hindsight. We get to look at how the story ends. It's not really fair to Gideon, though. Uh, most likely, he's just imitating a process that he has seen and proven to be successful. Thresh your wheat like this, and you have a higher chance of keeping it secret from the Midianites, so we have a higher chance of surviving through the winter. Either way, this is not the actions of a person that a person would view as a world changer or a great hero. At the very best, these are the actions of a common person not wanting to rock the boat, and at worst, we would say these are the actions of a coward. But no matter what identity we give to these actions of Gideon, no matter what identity motivated Gideon and his actions, God had a better identity for him. Verse 12, which we already read, he says, The Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. See, we can be shaped by our circumstances. We can be shaped by how we view ourselves, and we can be shaped by the company we keep. But that does not change how the God, the Father, the Creator, I'm going to add, desires to shape us. It does not change the identity that He would like us to conform to. And I think that's real powerful imagery that we get from this scripture. The angel of the Lord is sitting under the oak tree. He sees Gideon. He sees Gideon hiding from his enemies. He sees Gideon threshing the wheat in fear working in secret, and yet God still calls Gideon valiant warrior. God does not call us by who we are or who we have been, but he calls us by this better identity that he has for us. He doesn't look at Gideon in the wine press and say, hey, coward, I'm calling you to greatness. He calls Gideon by the identity that he has planned for him, the identity that Gideon has not even yet earned the one that is important. We all pick out identities for ourselves. Uh, maybe some out of hubris. Sometimes we're like, ha, ha, I'm so great, look at me. And sometimes maybe uh, we give ourselves identities from our, our self-deprecating nature. Just, oh, I can't believe I did that. I am just utter garbage. But God has a better name for us. And it is the name by which he calls us. Which is beautiful and encouraging if we allow ourselves to submit to it. Gideon does not allow himself to submit to it at first. He gives this argument about the angel's first uh, statement that the Lord is with you. And he's like, well, if the Lord was with us, why does this happen? But then he switches to this argument about himself in verse 15. He said to him, O Lord, how shall I deliver Israel? Behold, my family is the least in Manasseh, and I'm the youngest in my father's house. Gideon cannot accept the identity that God has called him by. All Gideon can see is that he is the least of the least. My family is the least in Manasseh, so why would you choose any of us, first of all? And I'm the youngest, so again, why would you choose me? The least of the least is what he's focused on. That's all he can see. Look at me. I'm hiding in a hole in the ground. 
Does this look like the actions, behaviors, and qualities of a valiant warrior? Gideon is unable to reconcile this identity that God has for him with the identity that he sees for himself. And I think that's, that's a very relatable situation. But remember, God called him by who he intended Gideon to be. But Gideon's current identity is in conflict with this. And how many times in your life have you just thought, man, I'm not good enough for this? How many times have you like just been ready to go to sleep and then all of a sudden you're like, oh man, remember that thing that I did in, in seventh grade? <sighs> and it just haunts you because it was something silly that you said or something immature or irresponsible. And like, there are so many times that we just see who we've been. I'm not worthy. I'm not good enough for this. Just like Gideon, sometimes we see how we see ourselves keeps us from seeing and seeking the better identity that God has for us. Between the ages of 17 and 21, I struggled heavily with uh, depression. I just did. There was this initial event that kicked it off, but I carried it with me. And mainly, it was carried because of the identity that I gave myself. I identified myself by my failures, more specifically, by my weaknesses. And it led me into this kind of crisis of my faith, where I just... I never had a question that God was real, but I questioned how he could love me. I just, I couldn't grasp it. And now I ask that question, I'm like, like, man, I don't get how God loves me. And I, I take it real encouraging because it, it's the power and the love of God that he loves even me. But then it didn't encourage me and it didn't pull me closer into relationship with him. It, it kind of started to leave me away. How could he love me? I couldn't see in that time that God had a better name, that God had a better identity for me. All I had to do was learn to let go of the one that I had given myself and just rest in the fact that God loved me. He can use me and he intended to use me because Sometimes the identities that we take on for ourselves, or maybe the identities that others give us, they prevent us from seeing the better identity that God wants for us. And that's what we see Gideon doing there. Now, eventually Gideon will submit to this identity that God has for him. He's going to ask for some signs first, but he eventually submits and takes on this identity of valiant warrior. And when he does, God does some amazing things through him. God has Gideon tear down this idol of Baal, Baal, of Baal and the Asherah pole that's right next to him. Now, both of these belong to his father, which is another step of just like, man, he's not just standing in the face of the people of the city, of the Midianites, whose God this is, but he's also standing against his father. And he's willing to do this, and the people of the city find out, and they're like, hey, uh, Joash, bring out your son so we, can, so we can kill him. And Gideon is delivered from this with a little help from his father. Um, and then because of this, the people start getting ready to follow him. And he sends out this call. And he gathers together this army of the tribes of Manasseh and Asher and Zebulon and Naphtali. And they join him in war to go against the Midianites and the Amalekites. Gideon gathers together 32,000 men to go to war with him. Now, a lot of us know that 
God's going to reduce that number, and Gideon now has to go to war with only 300 men. But he's still willing and ready to submit to this identity that God has given him, and he will win over. He will win the day. He will deliver Israel from the Midianites, and he'll have 40 years of peace, and his, his sons, uh, they all lived happily ever after the end. Except that's not how it ends. Unfortunately, that's not how it works out for Gideon. Uh, he, did, he did defeat the Midianites, and afterwards there was 40 years of peace, um, and the Israelites want to make Gideon their king. Not just that, they want to give him a hereditary kingship so that his sons would be their king, and, and their son would be his king, or would be their king. Uh, so we jump into chapter 8, verses 22 through 23. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, both you and your son, and also your son's son, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. And that's so great, man. It's such a great answer. I love it. I'm not going to rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. Gideon at this point understood his identity was valiant warrior and God's identity was king. And it would be beautiful if he had just left things there, but he doesn't. Verses 24 through 27. Yet Gideon said to them, I would request of you this, that each of you give me an earring from his spoil. For they had gold earrings because they were Ishmaelites. They said, we will surely give them. They spread out a garment and every one of them threw in an earring from his spoil. The weight of the gold earrings that was requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. Besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple robes which were on the kings of Midian, and besides the neckbands that, that were on the camel's necks, and Gideon takes this and he makes an ephod and places it in the city of Ophrah, and all Israel plays the harlot with it there, so that it became a snare to Gideon and his household. Gideon accepted his identity that God had for him, and he had great success because of it. He even denies this identity that the people try to give to him of king. Good job. That's great. That's excellent. But he does this thing. He makes this golden ephod, and sadly, the people will eventually treat it like an idol. Uh, they will start worshiping it. That's what it means when it says they played the harlot. They start worshiping. The problem with Gideon making this uh, ephod, it's not just that the people eventually started worshiping it. That is a problem. But the ephod, there's only supposed to be one ephod in Israel, all right? It is, it is priestly garments that we read in Exodus 28, like all the things about it, all the way that it was made. But there's only supposed to be one, and it's only worn by the high priest. Gideon should not have one, Okay? He is not a priest. He's not even of the family that should be the priest. The priesthood belonged to the Levites, and Gideon is of the line of Manasseh. He should not have this. He should not be making this. But one of the things that the ephod would do, that they would use it for, is they'd try to discern God's will with it. And so we wonder, maybe, is, is that what Gideon's trying to do? We've seen him try and discern God's will before. 
with, with the laying up of the fleece. Maybe he's trying to discern God's will like with this thing. He wants this hold. So, hey, I want to learn how to follow you, God. So he makes his own ephod. Maybe that's what's going on. But it doesn't excuse it because he shouldn't have it. It belongs to someone else. And he's trying to take a different identity to add to his valiant warrior here. He's trying to say, hey, I also get to help discern what God wants from Israel. And he takes something that is out of character, that is beyond his identity. He takes something that is the priesthoods. And unfortunately, Israel will pay for this mistake. See, 40 years of playing the harlot to this has prepared them to return to idol worship. And as soon as Gideon dies, the people return to worshiping the Baals. And this is not the only mark of Gideon's failure to remember his identity. Going back up to verses 22 and 23 from before, he says that he will not be their king. He denies the kingship, right? And that's good and that's great. Yet somewhere between his victory, somewhere between him saying this and the time that he dies, we kind of have to wonder if he doesn't start behaving like a king. And the reason we have to wonder this is because sometime during that years of peace, he had, he had 70 um, sons. He had a lot of wives is what it says. But he had one son through a concubine in Shechem, and he named this son Abimelech. Now you're thinking, big deal. A lot of names are weird in the Bible. But Abimelech is a weird name for him to give his, ki his kid because it means my father is king. And it says specifically that Gideon named him this. Now, why would a person who denied kingship, who denied that, name his son, my father is king? A man who denied the throne, said that he would not be named king, gives his son this name. Again, I think we see Gideon stepping beyond the identity that God had given him. And again, there are dire consequences from it. Abimelech a man named my father is king, starts to believe his own hype and would try to become king. He ends up killing all but one of Gideon's son, and that son disappears into the wind. Um, and he leads Israel down. The, he's a terrible king. If you read Judges 9, he's, he's, just, he's not a good dude. And that is how the story of Gideon ends. It moves on to talking about Abimelech, and then it goes into the next judge. It talks about the next person who will deliver Israel. It doesn't end with his triumphs. It doesn't end with this, this great thing that he did. It ends in sorrow. Because Gideon, his actions were out of line and out of sync with the identity that God had given to him. And it reinforces on us this idea, this message that our actions, our actions need to be in line with the identity that God has given us because people are watching. All right, for Gideon, it was his sons and it was all of Israel. And they saw the things he did and it affected and it impacted their behavior. And there are people who are watching us, our children, our neighbors, our friends, our coworkers, and our actions need to line up with the identity that we have, that we claim in God, in Christ, because those people are watching us as well. 
and the way we behave will impact and affect their behavior. Now the band is going to come up, and they're going to play another song, and, and the song ties so well into the sermon. Um, and it's a, it's, it's a song about the, the identity that God has for us. Not just that, but that he's the only one who gets to give us an identity. Um, and I've alluded to it this whole sermon, but just so there's no confusion, this identity that he wants to give us is that we are his. We belong to him. He wants us to accept this identity. First John 3, uh, sorry, chapter 3, verse 1, it says, See how great a love the Father has given us, that we would be called children of God, and in fact, we are. That's the identity that God wants us to have. 